as Keith was talking about the forest and be wanting to be in the forest and loving being in the forest, I am always humbled and thrilled that our family has the privilege of living basically in the forest, <laughs> the boreal forest. We have a beautiful piece of land and uh, yeah, I think it really helps us appreciate and recognize our responsibility in creation and in stewarding creation. And that's what I'm going to talk about today is um, how the first couple chapters of Genesis speak to us, um, how the voice of God, the voice of creation speaks to us about stewarding creation, uh, relating in creation, and yeah, just looking into a couple things. I have some ideas of what I'm going to say about that, and we'll just see where we go. I haven't done this in a while, so I feel a little rusty. And of course, my wonderful husband had to listen to me for a few weeks, keep talking about all these ideas, and then he was like, oh, that's kind of long, it's, you shouldn't include that. And then, of course, last night I took all his advice and changed it up, and he made it much better. So <laughs> I'm looking forward to what happens here. We'll start off with, oh yeah, and I've never done the slides before, so if I forget and start not doing them, someone just yell at me and say, hey, catch up with those slides, because <laughs> uh, I think I'll forget. All right, so the creation narratives as our birth story, a love letter from our creator God, our cosmic parent who birthed the universe, humanity, all creatures, and all of creation. That's a mouthful. And the way I'm going to approach today is just to take some points from some inspirations I've found over the last few weeks. One of those was a beautiful um, suggestion from one of my mentor parents, or a, what would you call that? Someone who mentored me in my parenting when I was having my first child. A dear friend who just exemplifies love and just grace and gentleness as a parent things I certainly had to grow on. And one of the things she said was that, I didn't do it, but I love that she told me I should do it. <laughs> and it's always stuck with me. Um, she said that it's a good idea to write down, you know, your birth experience and your, you know, what it was like and what you were thinking and what you're feeling as you're preparing to give birth and, you know, put it all in a letter. And then when your child's older, you can read it with him or her and enjoy that. Well, I didn't because... Yeah, I was probably too busy or something, and now I wish I did, of course. But when I think of those words she said to me, it put me in mind of a new way to, or maybe just another way to look at the two narratives of creation in, in Genesis, in one verses, or chapters one and two, and just thinking about it, maybe taking a little creative license, and thinking about it as like, our birth narrative, humanity's birth narrative, creation's birth narrative, <laughs> our, a letter from God um, about what it was like um, when creation was going on. And when I think of that, I think it just brings to mind an intimacy that we sometimes miss. I think we can get caught up in a lot of like, you know, ideas about the creation story. And I know when my kids were little, I made them memorize the seven days and what happened on each one and draw a picture and do a sentence. And I look back and I'm like, oh, I kind of missed the big picture there. And I hope they've caught up with it now. But certainly we can get so caught up in some of our ideas or the ways we're trying to position um, the creation narrative and the stories of creation. And, and there's a lot of issues around it. There's a lot of controversy. There's libraries full of controversy around it. And I think sometimes we can just kind of, what do you call that when you have blinders on? And what I want to do today is kind of step wide, but also step intimate, if that makes sense. So becoming really intimate with the story 
and taking it personally, but also remember it's a big story and remember that it's about humanity and creation and all the things Keith's been talking about. So that's one of the inspirations. The other inspiration is from a book that I've been reading called Use Your Words. And it's all about being a mom and just trying to communicate the mom experience and write about it and think about it and kind of just take that in the enormity of it and somehow communicate it or at least understand it for ourselves a bit better. And one of the beautiful quotes from that that I've adapted a little bit to be relevant today from this book by Kate Hopper is that it takes great courage to give voice to the powerful emotions and fears that swirl deep beneath the surface of our daily lives, informing and shaping our relationship with the creator and the world at large. So we're gonna be courageous today, and we're gonna, I have been facing some of my fears that I have around the Genesis 1 and 2 narratives about things I might have wrong and things I might have messed up and things I taught my kids or things I'm doing as I relate to creation that I need to think more about and change, and I appreciate that Keith is challenging us to do that through this series this summer. So courage and fear are the things that struck me um, as I considered these two inspirations. So the first thing I'm gonna do is just read, so bear with me, it's kinda long. Um, and Michael, I didn't mark where the slides end, because I didn't think about using this, so if I keep rambling on and it's supposed to be on the next slide, you can flip to the next slide or someone just say, change slides. I don't mind if you interrupt me. Um, and what you'll notice, I don't, we're all at different places in how familiar we are with the Genesis story and, and with the Bible in general. Um, but one of the things that happens is, you know, it's not necessarily confusing to people who lived in the ancient Near East because there was, you know, it was pretty familiar to have oral stories and, and creation stories in their cultures, but for us, you know, post-scientific revolution, we want things to be factual and clear and make sense and line up. And so it can throw us off a little bit that there's two narratives and they don't totally match up. But again, we're taking that big view. We're going intimate and creative. <laughs> so if you do want to know why these stories might seem a little different or, you know, there might be some things that come out of each one, um, you can make a coffee with Keith, because <laughs> he's always saying that he loves for people to take him out for coffee and talk about these things, and so I'm going to put that into his capable hands. But um, yeah, just hear what's in the stories. And in the first section, it's sort of like we're taking a big picture view, and then in the second, it's kind of like we're honing in. They're like, think of them as pieces of art or pieces of writing that are speaking to you um, about your story and about who we are as, as humankind. First one, Genesis 1, I better, here we go. So I'll try to remember. Okay, well, if I don't remember, I trust Michael's awesome at this. He can keep me caught up. Genesis 1, 26 to 31. And I didn't do the whole thing because it was too long, but these are the relevant sections. Then God said, let us make humankind in our image according to our likeness. Let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the air and over the cattle and over all the wild animals of the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps upon the earth. So God created humankind in his image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. God blessed them, and God said to them, well, you got it, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the air and over every living thing that moves upon the earth. God said, see, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is upon the face of all the earth and every tree with seeds in its fruit, and you shall have them for food. 
and to every beast of the earth, and to every bird of the air, and to everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has the breath of life, I have given every green plant for food. And it was so. God saw everything that he had made, and indeed, it was very good. And there was evening, and there was morning, the sixth day. And now we'll step into the second narrative, which is in Genesis 2, 4 to 24. Maybe. Okay, awesome. In the day that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens, when no plant of the field was yet in the earth, and no herb of the field had yet sprung up, for the Lord God had not caused it to rain upon the earth, and there was no one to till the ground, but a stream would rise up from the earth and water the whole face of the ground. Then the Lord formed man from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living being. And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden, in the east. There he put the man whom he had formed. Out of the ground the Lord made to grow every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life also was in the midst of the garden, and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. A river flows out of Eden to water the garden. I don't know if I included this part. I'm going to skip that part because it's about rivers and... We don't really need to read it right at this moment. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to till it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, You may freely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in, that day you sh for in the day that you eat of it you shall die. Then the Lord God said, It is not good that man should be alone. I will make him a helper as his partner. So out of the ground the Lord formed every animal of the field and every bird of the air and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all the cattle and to the birds of the air and to every animal of the field. But for the man there was not, a, there was not found a helper as his partner. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man and he slept. Then he took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman brought, and brought her to the man. Then the man said, This at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. This one shall be called woman, for out of man this one was taken. Therefore a man leaves his father and his mother and clings to his wife, and they become one flesh. So obviously there's a whole ton of stuff in there. But for our purposes today, I'm going to really focus in on what God is expressing as his intentions, what are identified as his intentions for humanity and creation. There were some words like dominion and reign and relationship, partnership, working. There's concepts in there that we're going to unpack a little bit, but again, there's so much that I encourage you to even go home and read the whole story from, both stories from beginning to end, because um, it's very rich. So our birth story, oh, I think I'm, I'm just going to share a few little ideas that come out of this story. Um, what I found as I was contemplating this over the past few weeks is that you know, looking, trying to see it more personally, trying to see it, you know, kind of as like, where do I hear the voice, you know, the voice speaking to me um, and to us as humankind. Um, I've, these are the things that kind of stirred up through all the other things that were going on. How are we to relate to humankind? 
how are we to relate to creation and how are we to relate to living creatures? What principles did, were put out in this um, story of our birth? Um, it also speaks of our identity as image bearers of the creation. We're to bear his image as we steward it in his likeness. So what does it, as it speaks of that, what does it say and how can we do that? And finally, how are we to be like Jesus um, as we do these things? So, you know, as it said in the, the passages, we were born of relationship. God chose to make us in the image of, you know, his different aspects. We might call that, um, what's it called? The tr help me out. The Trinity, thank you. I was thinking triune and I couldn't get the word. So, you know, spirit, you know, Jesus was present at creation, God the Father. Um, that's where the we and the us and, and being in the image and likeness of God comes from. And that speaks to relationship. We're created of relationships within God and we're created for relationships. Immediately, God recognizes it is not good for man to be alone. So he creates the creatures. And obviously God wouldn't have done that unless he thought man will in some way relate to these creatures. And he did. I can't imagine what, you know, when we get a puppy or an animal in our house, it's like we're so excited to name it. The kids have a million ideas. And once we settle on one, all of a sudden it's like, that was the name for this animal. And it's like, of course it's just the name we picked. But we feel like that was the identity. My dog is a Percy. <laughs> and we get this sense that we have a part in that being's existence. We've named it. It's become part. You know, it's a, it relates to us in that way. And with human beings, obviously, you know, we are created to relate. The intimacy and the relationship between Adam and Eve is um, very, I would say, almost erotic in its sensuality as expressed in this story. They were one flesh. They were without shame. They were together. I don't even know if we've been able to experience that since because in so many ways, you know, that whole um, connectedness has been a bit corrupted. But that was God's intention, was for us to be connected with other human beings, particularly with our partners, in a very intense way, in a, a way that reflects God's way of relating within himself. All of God's creative acts were called good or very good up until he recognized that man was alone. This is a very common point made from this. It's the only thing he says is not good, is for humans to be alone. So God made the woman out of Adam's flesh and bone, the first human. And when Eve, Eve means the mother of all living things, when she arrives, how does Adam respond? He's joyful. He's thrilled to have this partner that reflects him in so many ways, but is also unique in herself. This is at last bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. And so they embark on a relationship of intimacy, but a relationship that also has a purpose. You know, they have something to do. They are to work this garden. They are to, and if you imagine, you know, gardening is pretty trendy right now. And if you think about that, the reason is it brings joy. There's something special that happens. There's something very tactile and somatic that happens when we touch the earth and we touch the plants and we kind of like I said about the dogs right like we feel like we're part of it we want to have a you know we have a garden out here and the children can get in there and and put their hands in the earth and they relate to each other and they work it together and even us as a community we relate around that garden and it's part of 
you know, a part of our identity in some ways. There's a reason we wanted it there in the middle of, we used to call this the industrial desert. Trees have started to grow up, but when I was a kid, this was like a no man's land. <laughs> there was like a few industrial parks in this area, but it was just like barren. <laughs> so it's beautiful to think of bringing creation, bringing growth, bringing new life into this space. And that affects our relationship with each other, our relationship with God, and our relationship with those things that are gonna grow up out of the earth. Eve was created as Adam's helper partner. You know, again, one, like I said, this ver these chapters or stories are full of things that we touch on that can get a little controversial, but I think, you know, to emphasize that idea that partnership, what does that mean? What does it mean to, you know, we're forced to work together with, you know, we think of our coworkers. Sometimes it can be challenging to work together. And when we think even in our marriages or in our families, that word partner can sometimes feel distant. But God's intention was to say, this, this is something you're going to do together. This is a responsibility that you have to figure out um, and wrestle with and get messy with together. And again, that word helper indicates that like Adam, she would be doing the work with him. To be a partner is to work alongside, to work with, to enjoy the fruits with. Um, of course, you know, there's hermits that occasionally want to be off on their own, but I think you know, if we see something beautiful, if we grow something beautiful, if, you know, I think of when I go on walks at my house in the beautiful creation, it's never quite as wonderful as when I'm with one of my family members or some friends. This beautiful relationship between the first humans got corrupted, of course, as we know the rest of the story. If you don't know the rest of the story, talk to Keith, and he's going to be covering that as the summer goes on. Sadly, you know, the story, you know, did get corrupted, and yet that's not the end of the story. God did intend for this story to carry out and, you know, carry on the new creation with Jesus. But that corruption that is there is something that we have to be honest about and wrestle with and dig into as we partner with other people and partner with those most intimate to us. I do want to just address, as not really a side note, but I think it's really valuable sometimes to dig in a little deeper into these words and you know, it can get messy talking about translation, but something that I've had to wrestle with over the last five to 10 years is the words used to describe Eve. And, um, you know, I don't think it would be too much of a surprise for me to say that in our Christian communities and our churches and our cultures over time, a lot of oppression and breakdown of that relationship has happened. And I think it's helpful sometimes to redeem words and to look into their deeper meanings and the domination of women by men, and sometimes vice versa, you know, from what I read in this story, it's not in accordance with what God originally intended. It's not, that's not what the partnership was supposed to look like. I think it is a tragic consequence of, you know, the wrong turn that the first humans took when they started to break away from God's original intention. And it's a heartbreak, you know, it's heartbreaking that our birth story has been manipulated. The intentions that, you know, if you think of being a parent and your intentions for your children, when you see, you know, I have teenagers, they're awesome, but sometimes I'm just like, that was not my intention when I had to for this to happen. And I think I, you know, how much that breaks God's heart when we do use manipulation or hurt or, oh. Oh, thank you, Steve. Did it fall off completely? Thanks, Scott. It's right here. Oh. How long ago did that happen? We've been watching it. Okay, <laughs> you know the problem is I have really big glass. My glasses have a, oh yeah. 
My glasses have a really thick arm, and Matt and I were saying how this is tricky. I mean, I could just hold, can I do that? Yeah. Sorry. No, you're good. Oh, yeah. Let's get comfortable. All right. Some may say that was God's intervention for me to stop talking about <laughs> the oppression of women and men. Just kidding. <laughs> Anyways, um, that word helper, I just want to make the point that in other places in the Bible, that word is also ref refers to God. God is our my helper. In Psalm 3010, um, the Lord be my helper. So clearly, you know, the intention wasn't that it was supposed to be a subordinate, dominant thing going on. So I'll just leave that with you. I just think it's really important as we try to hear the voice of creation to know that, I don't know, that's something I think that we really need to redeem deeply um, as we try to steward well and relate to each other as we steward well. Their relationship with creation and the other creatures is one of stewardship, of care through sacrifice, cohabitation in this beautiful place, sharing it together, enjoying it together, but also managing it together and helping it thrive and become what it was supposed to be. They were to do this as image bearers of the creator, and so therefore we are to do it as we relate and care for it, as God intended. The second point I was going to make was that our identity as image bearers of the creator, um, sorry, as our birth story speaks of our identity as image bearers of the creator, we're to bear this image as we steward in his likeness. And honestly, I don't often feel like an image bearer of God, <laughs> especially when I'm weary and especially when things are overwhelming. Sometimes I'll go months without stepping out into that beautiful forest in my backyard, and it breaks my heart. I know at times when I've gone kind of in, I call it going to the dark side. I think I've mentioned that other times. It's like almost like I resist wanting to go out there because secretly maybe I know that that's what I need. And sometimes Ryan will just come home and be like, go for a walk. <laughs> because he knows when I go out and I'm in those trees and they're giving off all those wonderful smells and all those oils that they give off, I do get revived. But sometimes I kind of want to stay in the dark. <laughs> and sometimes that can feel good in a weird way. And I think that's the corrupted way. But the true way we're supposed to, you know, respond is to take that as a gift, to take that creation and all the things it has to offer and be out in it. And that's part of our identity. God wanted to be, God wanted to bring about a place where he could dwell with us that was beautiful. And a lot of um, different authors I was looking at, they speak of the cathedral of creation. And I just think that's a beautiful imagery that we are to be out there in it, enjoying it with God in whatever way we can. And I do want to make a point that I recognize that it is somewhat privileged to be able to go walk, you know, gnarly, what do you call it, trails and climb mountains. And I do know that some people can't do that. And I think it's really important that we think about that as we think of urban ways to share creation and urban ways to help people who aren't able, don't have the mobility, don't have the ability to get outside on the edges of Thunder Bay. And I see beautiful things happening where people are bringing and stewarding creation in our city and making them more beautiful. And I know there are some people and I, you know, I hope none of you are among them, but I think it's good to just say this is sometimes people can get a little annoyed that our tax dollars are spent on that. And I think we have to rethink that as stewards of creation. We need to rethink who we're sharing it with. We need to rethink our privilege and, you know, why we need those, you know, we need to put our resources into those things. So sorry, that's a little aside, but I just think it's important that we keep the picture wide. 
So what is it like to steward in God's image? Adam and Eve were formed in God's image, as it says. They were given dominion over creation, just as God had. Amazing that he trusted the dominion of creation to us. Obviously, we didn't do an amazing job, but yet he believed in it. He believed it was possible. He had a purpose, and he had he kind of had the long, you know, the long picture in mind. Um, if you think of you know, what would it feel like if you had a, <laughs> I think of people who have beautiful gardens in front of their house, and sometimes you think about, would you entrust that to other people? <laughs> I'm not so sure um, we'd all be comfortable with that if we had invested all the time and energy and financial sacrifice it takes to keep those gardens looking wonderful. I can't think of what a winter analogy would be. <laughs> As a child, um, I would occasionally attend a Lutheran church with my mom and some members of our family, and we would it was very liturgical, and one of the um, things they would do is the proclamation of the Sanctus. Holy, 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 Lord God of power and might. Sorry. Lord God of power and might, heaven and earth are full of your glory. And I think that when we hear that, that the earth is full of God's glory, sometimes the liturgies can be beautiful because it reminds us, yeah, everything out there, everything around us is full of God's glory. So how does that affect our as we bear that image of him, it's part of the glory of what was intended. What does that mean for how we steward it? How, what does that mean for how we care for it? What does that mean for how I respond when I see something that may not be... Actually, I just thought of a funny story that my son, Lucas, I think he went to class, but we were at a beach the other day and there was some litter. There was actually a giant pineapple tube left. You know, shame on you if you did that. I'm sure no one in this room did, though. But it was, had obviously gotten a hole, and the people decided, you know. And my son, <laughs> Lucas, who was, you know, wrestling with his image bearing of the creator, was like, I said, okay, let's take that, let the water out. And he's just like, no, like, gross. I'm not touching someone's old slimy. And I'm like, no, wrap it up. And it was really interesting to watch a little 10-year-old wrestle with this idea that, no, it's not cool. Yeah, it's not our fault, but it's not cool to leave that tube laying on the beach for someone else to have to deal with. And, you know, by the time we got in, in the van, we took it home, and he's just looked at me. He's like, Mom, why did you bring that home? <laughs> he's just like, and I said, well, should we have left it there? He's like, no. And that's where he was stuck, right? I didn't want to deal with it. We shouldn't have had to deal with it, but we can't leave it there. And I think sometimes that's where we get um, paralyzed, right? We know the right thing to do, and we know we should <laughs> step out and do it, but sometimes it's kind of like, it's actually not my problem. So as image bearers, or as we reflect on being image bearers, I think we know what an image bearer of God would do in that situation, and yet sometimes, you know, it's easier just to let it, let it go. So anyways, those are just a couple points on image bearing and, and what it means. Oh, and... Just yesterday, I found this little um, quote from this guy named Sean McDonough. Sorry, I don't have a slide for it. But he has uh, an article called The Green Christ, which I thought was kind of a cool title. I just think his name's cool, Sean McDonough. I like Irish names. In the New Testament, the disciples of Jesus are called upon to live lightly on the earth. Take nothing for your journey, no staff, no bag, nor bread, nor money, and do not have two tunics. 
from Luke 9, 1 to 6. Jesus constantly warned about the dangers of attachment to wealth, to possessions, or power. How can we respond with this same humility, love, and compassion that this demonstrates? And I think that's just a beautiful way to just describe, you know, Jesus' image bearing, the way he was the image of God. He lived lightly. He didn't cling to the things that were on the earth. And I, as we step into the third point, oh, we lost our slides. Oh. How we are to be like Jesus in our image bearing. Oh, give me one sec. I think I'm through one of my pages behind that I still need. There it is. Um, oops. I was supposed to read that before I started yattering on about being in the creator's image. This is from N.T. Wright. I'll just back up a little bit before I move on to Jesus. He obviously writes, if you've looked at anything of his, he writes a lot about creation and new creation. And um, one of his books, Why Christian Character Matters, had this quote in it, which I've I think I've actually shared it here before, but I think it's wonderful, and I'll just share these again. The garden and all the living creatures, plants, and animals within it are designed to become what they were meant to be through the work of God's image-bearing creatures in their... What they were meant to be through the work of God's image-bearing creatures in their midst. The abuse of human's authority, then, doesn't abolish its proper use. It doesn't cancel out the vocation. Humans are to enable the garden to flourish and to speak words which bring articulate order to the wonderful diversity of God's creation. So there, I just wrapped it up instead of starting it out that way. And on to the third point about reflecting Jesus as we steward and relate to and find ways to care for creation. Um, you know, the other day, oh, I mentioned I was at the beach and we were, you know, getting ready. I was arriving and I was getting ready to settle on a blanket and these dogs were running around. They were all kind of wet. They weren't like awesome dogs. They were just mutts like I grew up with. And they were running around and they were all wet. And to be honest, when other, like I love my dogs. If my dogs, actually I get grossed out by my dog slobber as well, but I don't really like dog slobber, but I love dogs. And I slept with dogs as a kid. My best friend was my dog. Love dogs. But I also have a story in my past that my youngest sister, when we were, I was probably about five or six, and she was four years younger, she was mauled by a dog. She actually had part of her face bitten off by a dog, and I witnessed this, so I have a complicated relationship with dogs, but what everybody said when that happened, and I remember this as a kid hearing this and thinking, that's crazy, can't these adults hear that that's crazy? Oh, it's never done that before. It would never hurt a child, never, never. And I remember that standing out in my head because as a little kid, I could understand that's not logical. It just tried to bite her face off, and you're saying it would never do that to a child. Like, <laughs> it's not adding up. And I get it. We love our dogs. You know, we have beautiful dogs. And I know nowadays especially people are very attached to their dogs. But I bring that baggage to my relationship with these, you know, dogs created, the gods created. And I'm like, I want to love these dogs. But right now they're super annoying. And it's really, you know, I have this hostility coming up. It's kind of bugging me that these people are ignoring their dogs and swimming in the lake, and I have to deal with their dogs running around my kids and stuff. And so I, the hostility was rising. I started to walk over to these people, and I wanted to kind of be, I'm like, hey, calm, be nice, polite, be like Jesus. But I actually wanted to say, get your stupid dogs on a leash. <laughs> but I just said, could you please, you know, get your dogs under control because we're trying to enjoy the beach. And of course, these well-intentioned young people who are having an awesome night, oh, they're just trying to make friends. <laughs> and I'm like, oh, awesome. I don't want to be friends with your slobbery dog right now. And so it's just this interesting thing where I totally get it. These people love their dogs and they trust their dogs around my kids. And 
and inside I'm having this hostility. And I think that's a beautiful picture of why we need to look at Jesus and why we need to understand the way he walked with people and the humility he held and the way he connected with people, um, just as that um, verse described, or that passage I read from the Green Christ described. He had a way of honoring creation and speaking of the beauty of creation and bringing it into his parables and appreciating it. But he also, you know, he honored people, you know, above most other things. Um, And he had a way of loving and honoring and relating to creation in humility, but also relating to people in a way that was, was a blessing. And I think sometimes... I needed, you know, obviously the other day I needed that reminder as I tried to talk to these ladies, (laughs) and I also need that reminder when I'm tempted to shame other people about how they're dealing with creation. I need that reminder when I'm going to shame someone about what they're eating, the fruit of creation. Maybe I need that reminder when I'm getting hostile about the way I see injustice happening in creation. And I think that Jesus just helps us remember who we are, remember who we should be, remember how we're supposed to relate, as all those other points made, Um, just enjoying and protecting and honoring creation, but also being humble and careful in the way that we do that, so that we're not suddenly, you know, in our wonder, in our desire to steward creation, we're throwing human beings who are created in the image of God under the bus, or becoming hostile with them. And I think that's just something that's really relevant in our culture here in the West, and particularly in North America and Thunder Bay, where, you know, there are a lot of ways that our creation can be dishonored and disregarded, and it's hard not to be hostile towards people who are doing that. And speaking of Jesus, John started his gospel with another creation account. In the beginning was the word, he wrote. All the things were made through him, the light shines in the darkness, and the world became flesh and dwelt among us. And I think that this is like... John speaking to this fulfillment, and Keith's, you know, done such a great job of helping us try to understand that, and I'm not going to go into it, but I think that's where I want to land with Jesus, is he is our way, he is bringing us, you know, into the new creation, he's helping us have it here on earth, and I think we need to look to him um, as we do this and put hands and feet to it. John's deliberate use of language from Genesis helps us see the coming of Christ as a new creation. It also helps us understand God's purpose in creation from the start and our role in it. And I'm just going to finish up with two, two quotes that didn't really fit anywhere in my message, but I really like them. <laughs> and that's just how it goes sometimes. There's never enough space to include it all. God, the creative spirit, was for, has formed nature, and he has entrusted the earth to us us, his sons and daughters, as an inheritance, but also as a task. Our garden must become his garden, and our work must further his kingdom. Eberhard Arnold, not sure I got his name right. He was a German theologian. Don't know a lot about him, but I, there was a wonderful blog post by somebody else that had this quote, and I just thought it was beautiful. And the second one is, again, from N.T. Wright, and I think some of us uh, can remember back to when our Former Pastor Chris was reading one of N.T. Wright's books, and he mentioned Thunder Bay in a not-so-awesome way. And uh, this came from um, a blog post in which he mentioned that again. And if you want to know that story, you can come and ask me or ask someone else who was around at the time, or just read the book. The resurrection of Jesus is the reaffirmation of the goodness of creation, and the gift of the Spirit is there to make us the, f- the fully human beings we were supposed to be, precisely so that we can fulfill the manda- that mandate at last. What are we waiting for? 
Jesus is coming, let's go and plant those trees. And obviously that's a very trite way to end, but I think it kind of brings things into focus. There's stuff we can do, so let's just go do it. Um, And I hope you're encouraged to go and do some of those things as, you know, in relationship with one another, as image bearers of the creator and reflecting his love of his creation and as people who want to be like Jesus. Thanks. So friends, at the beginning of this series a couple weeks ago, I sort of warned us that uh, even though at first it may seem like studying creation and the voice of creation might seem romantic and full of awe, which it is that, um, it is also dangerous because uh, it gets at places really close to us. It gets to places closest to our pride and to our need for humility as stewards. So Carolyn, thank you for courageously taking us through these necessary pathways to get to the other side of true Christian humility and, and stewardship. So uh, I'm not sure where this hits you this morning. You might, uh, you might be eager and excited. You might be, uh, have your fists up. I'm not sure what it is for you. But um, either way, that's okay. Uh, whatever, whatever it is that God has spoken to you, I invite you now to bring that to his table. Uh, Jesus, um, who is our perfecter of the faith, um, showed us what selfless humility and love looks like on the cross and he knows how hard it is for us to continue in that way over and over and over again and so he says every time you meet gather and remember what I've did what I've done for you and the way of selfless love that I am uh, that I am forging so take a piece of bread as you come forward and dip it into the juice which are symbols of his broken body and his shed blood Uh, and um, whatever it is that you have on your heart, I invite you this morning to bring that to the table and to God himself. So friends, uh, as the couple more songs play, uh, there's more work to be done here uh, in our our time together. So I invite you uh, here. The table is set, and everyone is welcome.